Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly adventures. Now, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicting along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another X-Men X Wednesday, and I'm so excited to talk about the core titles that shaped this show in the first place. Not that we don't have a special place in our hearts for all of the titles we cover here on Mondays and Fridays, but it's always so exciting to talk about the X-Men here on X's for Podcast. And today, we're going to be taking a look at... X-Men Unlimited number 26, a pretty special St. Patrick's Day story that holds significant meaning for me, as well as incredible coverage of Sabretooth number 2, and an exciting look at X-Men Legends number 12, Chris Claremont's somehow first appearance on the title. But I want to kick things off with that discussion about X-Men Unlimited number 26. X-Men Unlimited 26 was brought to us by the incredible creative team Declan Shalvey, Nick Roche, and Chris O'Halloran, and this is a Patty's Day yarn, and you know, I talk a lot about who who I am and how I grew up and blah, blah, blah on this show. And, you know, that's part of the nature, I think, of feeling like a storyteller. And comics and podcasting, they really call for storytellers, right? And we all have kind of narrative experiences that shaped us. And I feel like Black Tom and Banshee represent a really unique intersection of the Marvel experience and the X-Men experience. I think Banshee is a very recognizable character from the outside who many people don't recognize is oftentimes backburner in the titles themselves and Black Tom you know my journey of discovery to my own gayness in terms of Black Tom was a really long coming thing I have long and I've talked about it on the show I've long dealt with body dysmorphia and I you know want to be juggernaut huge and you know that's like a thing for me and there's something about the idea of being able to accept this queer coded couple this big oversized guy and this amazing kind of love that he shares with this other guy who, while the two of them did not really align with moral good, they aligned with each other. And there's really something about kind of like two queers against the world that I really identify with, with falling in love with my husband. And one of the things we've discussed a lot on this show is the magic of the Krakoan age and the open sense of kind of polyism where characters can engage in multiple love affairs. And I am really so incredibly touched to see so much of the man I grew up to be shaped by these stories being reflected back in these stories now and that's something that really is a huge part of why I spend so much time making this show every fucking week right because it it's just really special and I never thought that I would come to see the day where my pick of the week was an X-Men Unlimited digital story starring Banshee, Black Tom, and absolutely Siren but we started this show by trying to cover all of the X-Men stories one after another so our second proper episode of uncanny X-Men coverage. So I think like I'm talking like our third episode of the series altogether back when we only did older material covered Cassidy Keep. And so this is a a huge part of what I associate with the show and learning to edit. And so 
So while perhaps Banshee didn't mean a lot to me growing up, as someone who found himself working in education and found himself sort of accidentally in charge of kids and has come to love it. And, you know, my time in education was really important to me. And I was so proud to be able to have that experience. I've transitioned out of teaching, but I still work in education. And so seeing Banshee in sort of like a life after teaching is something that is interesting to me because, you know, you're really shaped by your experiences. And, you know, that's kind of what I'm getting to. In a lot of ways, this X-Men Unlimited story by this incredible team, which also includes the incredible talents of letterer VCs Joe Sabino. And it's just a shame that the letterer didn't get credited up at the top because, you know, lettering is such a huge part of these Unlimited Infinity comics. And so to get to the story itself, it's St. Patrick's Day. And I really appreciate that they are very clear to, you know, make the, the early on thing that, you know, American St. Patrick's Day is not really an Irish experience, but rather it's an Americanized Irish experience. And it's, you know, a celebration of heritage as opposed to a direct porting of a cultural festivity, right? And when Banshee returns to Cassidy Keep and it's, you know, absolutely dilapidated, one of the things that I really appreciated was, you know, Black Tom waiting for him inside speaking Gaelic. Now, you know, I've spoken a lot about my heritage on this show and I actually did grow up, you know, also a good Irish kid. I took Gaelic lessons as a kid. And so, you know, while I would never do anybody the disservice of pronouncing it because there's a certain amount of, if you don't say everything in Gaelic exactly right, it just sort of sounds like you're trying to gargle marbles. And I would never want to do the language disservice having taken three years of lessons, right? But there's something so interesting about sort of the, the great fall of the Cassidy Keep, because I wonder if in a lot of ways that kind of represents the dissolution of what Banshee could have been for the X-Men. He's injured early on, so he leaves early on. A lot of people don't realize it, but essentially by Uncanny X-Men 129 in the Dark Phoenix Saga, Banshee really isn't a mainstay X-Man anymore. Of course, he does go on to serve in one of my absolute favorite periods of the series, the interim X-Men, as well as on Gen X and a number of other periods throughout the X line. But Cassidy Keep sort of being in disrepair, for me, in a lot of ways, does reflect the way the Cassidy family has been treated over the years. Whether it's Black Tom being a child-murdering tree person, which, like, you know, I... It's so hard for me because I want to love Black Tom, and I've, I've fallen in love with Black Tom, but, like, Sammy the Fish Boy is, like, my favorite thing from that era. <laughs> so, like, it's a little hard, but no, I've you know, happy queer Black Tom supporting his amazing boyfriend Juggernaut is a huge bit of headcanon that... Uh, uh, is a it's a it's a place of comfort for me. It's like a it's a happy place I go. And so you know, seeing Black Tom be able to actually step outside of that, though, you know, there's nothing about Juggernaut here, and I don't have a problem with that. There's nothing here that he would need to be like. By the way, my 350 pound boyfriend's gonna kick your ass. Like I don't, I wouldn't want that. You know, it's great to get to see another adventure of Black Tom, and seeing Black Tom and Banshee square off with nearly the dialogue from the animated series in a lot of ways. It's just really cute because, you know, in in a story where I'm talking about all of ways that this is a homecoming and all of the ways in which this is a story that has imprinted throughout time on me without me ever realizing it, it's really lovely to get that sort of kind of throw 
throwback feel that as soon as these two come together, they're immediately the kids that we can see about two thirds of the way down. I wish there was like panel markers on these so I could be like at location number 28. But instead, I've got to be like, like, I don't know, two thirds of the page when they're kids, you know. So there's also that amazing panel of Black Tom just absolutely punching the shit out of Banshee that I believe is referencing that classic X-Men story. And the art there just looks so fucking good. The art on this whole thing looks so crazy good, so expressive. It kind of conjures up what if Jeff Smith's bone had more impact on the X-Men, but, you know, X-Men still retained that sense of, like, Marvel House-style JR JR for, like, 30 years, and then sort of, like, that imminent quality. Not like this is derivative in any way, but it reflects, again, such a beautiful merging of minds across time. There's something that's really expressive about this to me, and, you know, when Siren comes in and we sort of get this, this summation of, it's something I've always said, that while true Black Tom did believe that he was, you know, outright stealing Teresa, he believed he was stealing Teresa to still give her, like, a family unit. He did not believe that he was stealing this child to become, like, bad guy, mean person. You know, it's the kind of dual thing that is so complex about comics. When we talk about real traumas inflicted by real parents, it's it's pretty real, you know what I mean? But, like, mystique yeeting Nightcrawler off a waterfall is gonna come up as a punchline in this episode later on and that's part of the nature of how do we even deal with the things these characters have done to one another because of the scale and the scope and sort of the changing shifting acceptability of suspension of disbelief we allowed for things in the 70s that we wouldn't allow for now so seeing Tom seeing Sean seeing Teresa all sort of come together to talk this whole thing out there's something really fascinating about you know don't get me wrong Sean spends a lot of time dead or screaming I guess so it's probably hard for him to hear things like you know Eamon died a few years ago and Teresa's been looking after it you know Cassidy Keep and it's so important that in many ways Tom shows that he actually does really care about this woman by being reflective of that interest that parenthood that oh I do know what's going on not just with our family estate bucko but I do know what's going on with our daughter in a matter of speaking you know it's a very kind of Greg Evigan Paul Reiser situation very pre-Helen Hunt right so I really also thought that Siren showed a lot of the growth that we had all been hoping to see in a post Leah Williams x-factor world there's something so significant about the transformation that all of the characters went through in x-factor that we were really hoping to see echo through the pages of the Marvel Universe and I think we're seeing it pretty immediately with Siren here you know her quote about you'll always be my father no matter how far apart we are but painful as it was life did move on while you were gone and you know Banshee says something that is so X-Men he says I suppose suppose I've been away so long dead a zombie I forgot a few things you're always welcome here love and that's such an important level to this because by creating analogous situations for real life events you know fathers that weren't there for their children in these over the top situations one of the things that you do need to occasionally acknowledge is the over the topness you can't just be like but he wasn't dead because that actually does affect how somebody sees the story right so a major thing that we talk about a lot on this show is you know apology and forgiveness and that also comes up later in this episode and so it's really important that even though there were frequently outside contributing factors to Banshee's poor decisions he often did make those decisions without outside factors and all of it still needs apologizing for and you know seeing Siren have a good sense of humor about the whole thing and saying 
I gotta go clean this place up. I just was enchanted by seeing Banshee and Tom finish this whole thing off by going to get a drink, blood still running down their faces. I was just so happy. And speaking of little queer touches, Black Tom having the flowers in his hair and then being just so bright. Like, I don't know, this book, I didn't expect this to affect me. I thought I was sitting down to another sort of, you know, Marvel holiday special ghost writer, Robbie Reyes taking his brother and his brother's girlfriend out on a date. And, or I thought maybe this was going to be another amazing Wong's Lunar New Year, which was a little bit more fun than it was serious. You know, on the other side of things, we of course got a very serious story in the pages of Happy Holidays, Mr. Howlett. But I think because the nature of X-Men Unlimited has perhaps been a little uncertain, a little precarious, and we touched on this last episode in the coverage of Marvel Fairy Tales, it's kind of hard to know what you're sitting down to I probably would appreciate some sort of like color coding system red stories are quick reads blue stories are a little bit longer and green stories you better have 45 minutes and nowhere to be right you need a battery charger and a box of snacks you know so I cannot recommend x-men unlimited enough whether it's the paired arcs of the first arc and the most recent complete arc or the Fabian Nicieza juggernaut story that I, and Deadpool of course, because that's my other boy, that I went all nuts for last time we covered it. You know, the Sauron story was maybe, you know, I probably should have called it X-Men Green, but it, you know, for me it was the Sauron story. Right? You know, your mileage may vary, but I think X-Men Unlimited is consistently the most fun I have with the Unlimited experience on a regular basis and a lot of it has been these sort of shorter stories in the last batch nothing against the two eight parters again which one of which I was just so positive on it's a little bit easier to feel like I'm sitting down to like 10 minutes of reading instead of like 40 minutes of reading sometimes right because I can look for my longer reads from my full issues so I don't know I think everybody this is a, a pretty lighthearted story it's pretty fun if you can forgive that it is by the nature of the fact that it's trying to reflect on a time period that was white male heavy. If you can sort of step outside of that, that this is by the nature of trying to settle stories for these characters, I think it's a really great use of X-Men Unlimited. Of course, I am always here for more diversity, so I'm very excited when they are able to get a little bit more, you know, queer color and female-led stories out there. You know, Black Tom's queerness, like I said, didn't really come up here, and I definitely do recognize that we are starting to see more writers talk openly about how they do write Black Tom as queer whether or not it's on the page but anyway speaking of characters that spent a long time as villains and are still actually just pieces of shit Sabretooth has a title and I kind of do love this book I kind of do I don't want to but it's one of those things of I don't love the character I love the job that's being done I've been a huge fan of Leonard Kirk's since way back on Captain Britain and MI13 where he first entered sort of the X realm for me and did such an amazing job and we hope you guys enjoy the coverage of this title just as much as we enjoyed making it as always you guys can find us over on twitter at x's for podcasts so don't forget to give us a follow over there and enjoy this segment welcome back to another episode of x is for podcast this week we're going to be talking about Sabretooth, 
issue two, written by Victor Laval, with art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rain Barreto, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. We go deeper into the Krakoan prison industrial complex, as Sabretooth, who has become lord of his own personal hell, has to deal with five new inmates. One of them I have some very, very strong feelings about. Hey, I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Trantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. A-E-M-T-K. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at asleepatthewheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you find me across social media at wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. So I was not in on the coverage on Sabretooth 1. It found it incredibly well written. It was a a very, very pleasant surprise. I was not sure what we were going to get out of a book like that. And I also, Sabretooth, that is not really a multifaceted character typically, I thought that we got just a, a very appropriate amount of depth without any sort of like justification or retribution. Like, he's still a dick. He's still like a bastard. Like, that didn't change. The biggest shock for me, and I think for most of us, was that final page reveal. Not just that there were more people being sent to Krakoa jail, which was a little bit of a shock, but one of them in particular. And after 20 more pages of this, still, still don't know why or how our sweet baby girl, Oya, is in jail. I have feelings about this, not just because, like, oh, one of the five characters they sent to jail, and we don't know why, and it seems out of character, is this sweet character, but because one of the five characters that they sent to jail that doesn't seem like character that should be going to jail is black, and that's a fucking problem. I mean, I feel like one of the interesting things is the fact that they chose such a wide range of characters and to give us very uh, diverse amounts of backstory onto how they wound up there. Like, the, I mean, Oya... <sighs> Oya makes some choices, and it definitely sounds like in the ruling, she did something criminal that she does not regret. Enough was not said that I'm still really waiting to find out more, and I will not be surprised if it goes either way. Melter, on the other hand, was just practicing on some rocks and is now in hell Melter got railroaded. Yeah, I mean, like... So I think what the numbers are supposed to represent over their heads is the mutant law that they broke. So okay, see, I was wondering about that. If you yeah. thought that was a level of infraction or okay. If Melter was destroying rocks then without Krakoa's appro- approval. Broken the sacred land. Yeah. Then that's not respecting the sacred land. Oya, uh, I mean... She murdered some humans. I'm, I'm right because one wow. is so just to review, right? It's one, two, three. One, yeah, is make more mutants. Two is kill no humans. Three mm-hmm. is respect the sacred land. So Dying third to know eye, how yeah. make more how... mutants was violated. Yeah, third eye is like what happened to third eye? Like he didn't have like he wore a condom. Like what happened? <laughs> like how did he? How the only... did? How do you violate make more mutants? The only thing that I can think of is that he was taking out mutant children before they powers manifested before maybe before they got picked up by cerebro yeah i don't know that's an interesting one but okay so melter and madison jeffries then are our that that was a good pickup i did not pick up on that the first time through i had questions about that necra is of course no surprise no surprise at all yeah no i mean also like necra makes a very compelling argument here that she nearly overthrew the united states government because they abused their power and they rose up against them which i think many 
many of us also kind of like we understand that a little. We can identify like, with it. Yeah. yeah, we can identify. Not saying and I love right, how it's said. Saying I understand. I love how it's said in the midst of Charles and Eric really uh, blurring the lines on Krakoa justice by not having the full quiet council there. We're still really. Uh, we have two mutants. old white men. What more do we need? Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're really not clear as readers, and I think the characters really are not clear on the specifics of this justice system and how it's going to function on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, maybe Necro's making a few valid points, right? And and I mean, you have Doug, who is clearly pointing out that this is some bullshit, both in the way that the council is convening and the fact that they're sending a whole batch of new prisoners into the pit. Mm-hmm. And pair this with an opening, too, an interesting, interesting opening passage, right? That it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Not just for the context of that, of what it says about the validity of prison as a restitutional system, but that they chose a quote by Frederick Douglass, by a probably the most famous black abolitionist in our nation's history. When we're talking about prison essentially as enslavement being much of what is done here. I like the steps and the risks Laval is making here because it would be very, very easy to just turn this into the new Jim Crow with mutants. And I think that he's dancing in a lot of that, but not too far to make it preachy, just enough so that way we can see it and be like, yeah, this is all fucked, ain't it? Well, and you know, we still are... This book is still revolving around an irredeemable person, somebody whose actions are as reprehensible as the idea of prison as just punishment and penance with absolutely no productive way of rehabilitating people and helping them. So there's no, there's really no winners here. And adding these five characters in is a great way to show the broad spectrum of people that that can affect and how it's going to do so. It is. And it's a surprising choice. I was surprised that we were going to get more and if not more multiple characters thrown into the pit and extra surprised that I mean not even just that to say that he chose Oya but that he managed to find a popular enough character that is predominantly like that has not been used at all since House of X to throw in the pit which I mean is is just kind of an interesting you know like wiki find for him as well because the the whole idea of prison was on Krakow was rough for a lot of us when it first happened in House of X. But the justification was like, what the fuck else do you do with Sabretooth? Like, Sabretooth is not going to follow those three laws. Like, the point of this is that, like, this is a a better nation that actually meets the needs of these disenfranchised people, the majority of whom are only considered criminal or villain because of how dangerous society has presented itself to them. You know, that (laughs) the, the world has made the human world has made no effort to treat them with dignity or respect to accommodate their needs or to meet or to present them with any sort of basic rights and so this new world would be different and we've seen that and we've seen it go really well for some of the former marauders and for big blue daddy and you know and we've seen it go kind of an exodus we've seen it go questionable in terms of what they actually do 
with it, but that, you know, they still kind of have a place and are maybe a net positive for society in people like Sinister and Mystique and Frederick J. Dukes. Frederick J. Dukes living his best <laughs> life. Living his best life out here at the Tiki Bar at the Green Lagoon. Business owner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, he he's become uh, the mutant Sam Malone, and we all we all love him. Like pre twenty nineteen, did any of us see a day where the Blob would become like a universally beloved character? Like this world has given so much opportunity, but Victor Creed wasn't going to take advantage of that. Like Victor Creed was not going to be surprisingly rolling in the grass with children like Logan was in House of X one. That 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 wasn't happening. So what do you do? I mean, he was starting to make a change during Age of X-Men. During Age of X-Men? Yeah, when he was with uh, Betsy. Oh, Blob. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. I, Victor Creed was not going to be oh, wrong. Oh, Victor sorry. Creed was not going sorry. to be. Um, okay, I lost track. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, we got to see. Well, and again, because here in, that's a great segue. Like, I, Age of X-Men, I know, is, is I don't want to say controversial. I think that there's a, a, a very diverse opinion set on it in terms of people who really like it, really don't. I love Age of X-Men and I think that paired with Rosencanny it's a really fantastic best of times worst of times it's a great way to kind of wrap up the pre-Krakoan era and show us that the best case scenario for mutants the worst case scenario living in human world neither of them fucking work Mm -hmm. which I think is the big catalyst for why you get so many of the mutants on board for stopping trying to integrate into human world and I think Age of X-Men when we reflect on it now it's a lot and especially when we reflect on it in contrast to Krakoa it's a lot easier to take lessons from it and to enjoy it I think the reason it really suffered at the time was because none of us knew what was going to happen after and we've been watching the franchise get so beat up by corporate and the lack of ability to incorporate the X-Men into the MCU so every time a new event would happen or we'd see a change in status quo we were just like are they dunking these guys further away in the garbage pile so that hopefully mainstream media will forget about them and you know we can bring the Inhumans up or somebody that you know Marvel can put the Eternals. into TV. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The Eternals yep. now. And let's be honest here. If the Hoxpox era of X-Men was not as successful as it was the Eternals would 1000% be replacing the X-Men the way the Inhumans were. Oh completely. Oh yeah. Totally. Completely. But now you know Age of X-Men and uh, Rosenberg Uncanny era stands as a really important like things cannot get any more extreme for the mutants before we need to see a sea change and you know we start off being like okay we really needed this we needed this island nation we needed this new era this is all the best possible thing and over the course of the next two years we start having to admit to ourselves even if we love this as readers and even if we love the idea of this for oppressed people it's not perfect and we do have to have some kind of reckoning with the flaws and the prison system is a fan fantastic example if because this was the first major identifiable flaw not to say like having sinister on the council isn't a long-term flaw but it was (laughs) not a flaw in the ideology like this was a major contradiction in the ideology from the get-go but it was paired with saber tooth so you didn't ever least you never wanted to say yeah you you know we're all sitting there like i hate it but also saber tooth is going to ruin this whole thing so i don't know what to do i guess it's fine let's move on to new issues of marauders and cable and 
X factor and forget about it. Which is what we did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now we get to go back. And and I'm glad that there was no, that this wasn't rushed. And I'm glad that this appears to be something that they waited for the right writer to make the right pitch on it. That this wasn't just thrown in as like a C-thread in X-Force or some or Marauders. And honestly, because again, it's Sabretooth. No, not Marauders. I'm saying Hellions. Hellions would be the um, the book for him. Mm. But we've seen that with Sabretooth. Like, goddamn, we've seen it so many times. How many times have we're going to put Sabretooth on a team and he's going to be the he's going to be the bad guy that the other good guys are. He's going to have a chip on him or he's going to have a collar or he's going to have been mind controlled or he's going to have been access flipped or he's going to have been like, how many times have we seen the like, no, we're going to make the best of Sabretooth on a team like that. And I'm glad that they didn't only because it's been done so many times. All those other characters got to have their first shot at it. And Hellions was a fantastic book. I'm glad it didn't get dragged down by, you know, Sabretooth round eight. (laughs) I'm glad that they were getting a flashback through this book because it does give us a chance to see why these characters haven't shown up in other books either. So we, like you said earlier, Josh, we hadn't had any view of Oya at all since Hoxpox. So having this, this flashback series where they show that, hey, she's actually been in the pit this whole time. It's a really great explanation for why certain characters aren't appearing. And I mean, it was kind of nice seeing Big Blue Daddy again as well. So even if it was just a little, <laughs> a little panel. I was going to say that as well. I loved that the flashback nature of this got to give us a glimpse of him. That made me so happy. And you could also just kind of see from the clothes and have a feeling of exactly where we were at because of the, the evolution and everything we got on that character. Um, the next thing I wanted to kind of bring up or ask about was Mole. So first we have Third Eye, who makes a little psychic escape and gets out and visits Mole. And then we get to see Mole, and I was a little kind of off by it at first. Some of it was the Leonard Kirk art, where I was kind of seeing this shaggy, and I'm like, wait a, wait a minute, is this supposed to be like Baby Sabretooth? And then we got the page, and I'm like, oh no, it's Mole! Oh my god! And just all of the, you know, I got my heart broke, I tried to compete with the angel for the attention of a lady named Opal Naka, and I'm like, oh, it's all we're going back to to OG early uh, X Factor. Except that was a slight continuity error. Yeah, because it's Iceman. Exactly. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These things. But happen. it's still like I, I I glossed over that. I'm like I yeah. know what they've got. I'm like wait. Yeah. I like to think that Mole just so doesn't care about them that he already forgot which one it was, I, or <laughs> that he can't tell the difference between the two uh, pretty white right. boys. Yeah. That yeah. he thinks that that he thinks Bobby and Warren are exactly the same, and I'm yeah. totally okay with that. I'm totally sure. okay with a all white people look alike. Because uh-huh. yeah, because then even later he sees Archangel flying through the sky, and he even tried to flag down an old rival, but he didn't notice. Um, so it was it was very cutely done, and and deep holes like that into old comics always make me very happy. And I love the way that he wrote, you know, he weaved this character in that has a tie to Sabretooth. Like he found somebody that plausibly third eye would be able to connect to Sabretooth and so follow that connection to 
get to mole and we now have another wrinkle in this like yes the prisons are wrong but Sabretooth isn't a good person does Sabretooth deserve mole's help really no he does not but if mole's higher calling of addressing the fact that these people are all down there and that's messed up if Sabretooth ends up benefiting from that that might just be the cost of fixing this system there just isn't a perfect answer in which everybody is placed where they ought to be and gets what they need yeah and so and it's an interesting take that they wind up are we assuming is this xavier's mental did xavier literally create a psychic krakoa state penitentiary to look like just the shittiest prison ever for them i've been wondering about that is he that is he just that big of a douche i've been wondering if it's his construction or if he laid out rules by which while they're down there they create their own environment that Sabretooth is already kind of mastering how to do that. I, I kind of got the feeling that it was Sabretooth manipulating the environment through his being there and just by him being the the first one there he was the one who has the most influence over it. Well, I definitely did before. I wasn't sure about once it all turned into the penitentiary with the orange jumpsuits. Yeah. I, I think that was his way of explaining to to the others that while he was promised that it was going to be a you're going to be alive and aware but not really able to do anything that it wasn't going to be a prison and him showing that hey they lied to you this is still a prison yeah yeah there's and it's an interesting in terms of the back and forth in which characters believe the bullshit and which ones are kind of beginning to see through it and then you have Sabretooth that's just like <laughs> it's all been bullshit all along and goddamn like because you gotta hate that he's right but he's right I also really like his perspective on this at the end and I think that his experience and his position as being I mean Sabretooth makes him the one who's gonna kind of see through the bullshit and get here first but you're not the ones who did this to me you're not the ones I hate so now I have a different plan which is a very honest way of taking this from issue one Sabretooth becomes a lord of hell which also I didn't even get in because this is really an issue one thing but the clear influence from the show Loki where we got like all of the not to say Sabretooth variants but essentially <laughs> like what felt like mimicking all the Loki variants when he was in like the, the end of time hell prison thing as well and and yeah that he would go from that to then and his immediate first response is oh you sent more people here I have new things to distract me that I can fuck with to very quickly kind of turning on like okay like you guys are not no like we're not gonna play into this system and i'm gonna be used as part of your punishment like you were sent to me because you were bad like the real person who's fuck here is xavier like the real person that it's the the prison industrial complex it's the self-proclaimed warden like letting the warden pit the prisoners against each other we're not playing that game it's also pretty fascinating that issue one really gave us this indication that Sabretooth as a creature of pure animal instinct would never really be satisfied with anything other than killing and torturing and being the king. How quickly we see a shift to where he realizes I will take no satisfaction out of the death of these five people. I am now, I've extended myself to the point where now I'm starting to take interest in a more rational and calculated plan. It's still an evil plan, surely, and will shortly result 
result in a lot of death and carnage, but he's no longer operating on just, I want to cause as much pain as possible. I love killing. I love hurting other people. He's starting to see his, you know, fellow inmates as, you know, maybe even just tools, but for Sabretooth, that's a shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, if there's going to be any sort of kind of natural, I don't want to say acclimation. I'm not going to say that like Sabretooth is actually like growing or adjusting as a person, but to see him make this shift, I think it would have to happen the way it was done, which is to say that in the first issue, it's all about Sabretooth. He's our only character until the final page, really. But he's been taken out of society, right? He is an animal again because he is, he has no other, I want to say human, but he he has no other people to be around. Now he is given, after all of that time, he is given peers. He is given a small society of similarly persecuted people. And that's going to change things. If he was sent straight in there with the five of them, if the six of them were all sent straight into the hole at once, he'd have immediately started killing them, proving his dominance. Mm-hmm. Being alone for so long and then having others sent the same fate as him, I think, is a different emotional journey process that is much more believable that is it's a different process that would get a different result from him because again like this isn't to say that like well now he would kill any like he might turn around and just fucking cut one of them open anyway like that's but he is approaching them differently they they present a different sort of value to him it's still going to be inherently selfish because he's a sociopath he's not worried about what's best for them but they present a different kind of value than just gray that whole difference in when this when they could have added these characters into the pit it definitely changes the way that he he reacts to things and i like that he's gotten this laser focus on taking down the people responsible for jailing him especially since the laws weren't in effect when he was put into the pit um but he he sees that he sees these five as a good way to get back at xavier and you know what? I, I'm normally not somebody who who sides with Sabretooth, but in this case, I really do think that I'm behind him in this. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you've ever watched a prison escape film, right, there is a natural, there's a, even though in most prison escape films, right, everyone is in there for very justifiable reasons, except one or two characters, right? You have a whole bunch of, if not as vile as Sabretooths, like characters that were taken out of society for reasons that are much more clear. But when they rise up against the prison, or when they go to escape or take it, like, you're still all in on that, because here is an even more fucked up situation that they and people who don't belong there are in, which is essentially what we got here. I think the last line made me chuckle a little that, you know, um, Satan recruited five angels in his war against God because, like, we're taking a little leeway here calling, like, Necra and some of them angels. Like, oh yeah, for sure. But, like, Necra did try to start a revolution and and overthrow the United States of America. Again, no judgment. It's interesting that Sabretooth is a pretty solipsistic character, just, you know, on his own, regardless of who's writing him. You put him in a situation in which he is literally the only person in his only in in the world, and he explores his solipsism to its very end. And only at that point is then given other people and very quickly realizes, oh, I'm not the only person. And, uh, you know, we keep repeating this, but it's not in any kind of like, I love these people or they 
gray matter too it's like i recognize that other people have my experience and i can use that for something yeah i think that's what i was trying to say earlier that they have value it's still purely selfish for him because he's a sociopath and as you said like a solopsis it's a really really great read on that but yes they have more value than just as like Craig. they have a different type of value because he has kind of he has encountered them at a different point in his journey and i think if other people if somebody else had been the first person to go into the pit by themselves they probably would have in that process of being alone there become solipsistic and sort of forgotten about the fact that they weren't the only person that matters but that's Sabretooth's general mode so the shift that we have to see is him recognizing the value of other people the shared experience and what that's going to mean for his future journey and plans even if they're all destructive and interesting the way you describe him like that because that is a very accurate description of Sabretooth and since he's been gone we have one one other character that has truly fully blossomed and, and fit that description in, in his absence which is to say sinister like there is in the absence of Sabretooth there has been no other character that is fully immersed in himself and believes that he is the only one that matters and you know while these people around him have value it is they do not as like they're not equals or worthy of dignity and respect like they they just have value because he can use them in different ways but it's all about sinister which is hilarious because this is really the first time we see him with a significant number of peers and colleagues and having comparatively civil interactions in which he's being asked to act as more than a scientist and he's still sinister sexual <laughs> precisely <He really> is <laughs> It's and, and interestingly enough goes back to you know the, the Loki draw again that like so so self involved that like the only the only person he could fall for would want to be with is himself you know we got some strong vibes of that in Hellions like coming across other sinister clones that like the only the only thing he could possibly ever be attracted to is other sinisters and even with a character like Tarn he all he wants is to take what Tarn has and integrate it into Sinister he's not impressed he's not that he doesn't want that to be a person that he works with he just wants to take everything and become more sinister and and look at what we have here with the saber tooth like he's, he's not having visions of say logan or xavier or other people in his brain it is it is all the different versions of saber tooth it is the the <laughs> council of creed in there that are you know filling out in his hellscape yeah mm -hmm. how this book fits in kind of line wide with what we're seeing and when we're getting it given to us during this shift between inferno and the kind of full launch of full rollout of Destiny of X. So I had mentioned earlier in this episode that I'm really glad that they waited for a, that there was no rush to tell this story, that they waited for like the right writer to have the right pitch and that they kind of released it at the right time. I really like this idea that of what they're doing in the way that they're kind of turning over. Like we're in the off season. Like this is, if this is sports, like we are in like the off season, like Inferno was the Super Bowl, the NBA championships the world series like destiny of x is going to kick off and be the next season opener and but you know what there's other stuff to watch in between like you can keep up with free agency and the draft and there's all those kind of like little in-betweens while you have an off season you know and pre-streaming dominance you know we used to have you know the summers where you know you were off and the shows would kind of like reboot or different writers new season arcs and maybe you you know you find some shitty summer programming i like this as kind of like a blend of that like we're getting this we have this in-between time 
and you know we have a major weekly story that is kind of um, connecting in between in terms of what we're seeing with x lives x death and we're filling it out with some annuals some minis things like that one shots and this is like this is that type of like little gem you might have seen on like summer programming on cbs back in like the early 2000s like this is this is uh an nba draft like this is this is that off-season programming that i think is a perfect fit for it and a much better place than kind of when we were given say children of the atom or x corp those miniseries might have actually fit a little better in this in between like i i really like the idea of having good pitches like this maybe saved and given to us in off seasons um how do you feel about that and kind of the delivery when we're getting the saber-tooth story and and how they're delivering in this kind of awkward off season that i don't think is entirely marvel's fault as much as it is like hey they planned an off season and uh you know we're in a, a spike in global supply chain and shipping shenanigans i i honestly think that it was really well placed i've been kind of mad about the rest of the books that have been coming out lately so this this one has been fun so far and it's it's just something to keep me going until the main storyline really kicks into full gear again and i'm happy that i have it because otherwise i'm just kind of floating along not really keeping track of what's what's coming out at the moment and the fact that it's good helps because like we'll take good stories anytime but like of the whole vast x line two books did stop in the off season right in terms of x-men and new mutants and i feel pretty comfortable saying that i'm enjoying this more than the last two issues of dugan's x-men like i think that this is more interesting and i am more excited to read this in the next like not that i I, long term i would much rather have 20 more issues of dugan's x-men than 20 more issues of this because i don't think this has that much story but i am enjoying this in the in between more i think the way that we've set things up so that we have these sort of peaks and valleys in terms of big storylines makes it really feasible for long-term fans and people who pay attention to the minutiae and like to sort of see the grand vision of X storylines. These sort of lower times for the big books where stories like this can come into play really let us build on the picture that we have and sort of pull pieces together that if this is important to you, those stories will really enhance your understanding. If it's not, if you're just here for the blockbusters, if you're just going to come back in when the Judgment War starts, that's perfectly fine. This Sabretooth book probably is not going to have a lot of relevance to you. If he ends up showing up, you probably won't care about why he was there. But for those of us that are really tracking all this stuff, it's it's an important story to be told because we've been wondering about it for almost three years now. I think it's also really interesting that they that this story for Sabretooth is happening earlier. It's starting earlier on in the Krakoan timeline. We, this It hasn't been like two years and all these people finally got put in the pit. They were there when Apocalypse was still on the island before X of Swords had taken place. Yeah, this isn't happening concurrent with X deaths, right? Right, like, exactly. X deaths, it turned out, surprisingly, is like like Inferno 2. Like, yeah. X deaths is like the straight sequel bridge between Inferno and Destiny of X. This could have been given anywhere. I do like what you brought up about kind of this going into Judgment War, because uh, that leads into my final question for you. And so we'll start with you, TK. Do you feel that this is going to have an effect or impact? Like, we're, we're two issues in now. And in, look, in some of our past stories, like, we could be in a five-issue mini or arc and not have realized that this is going to have ramifications 
until like the last four pages of issue five. So there's a lot of story to be told. Are you getting the feeling that this is just a completely self-contained, right? Okay, this guy had a story. We could have dropped it anywhere. We're dropping it here. Or do you do you think that this is going to have ramifications? Like, is this the type of story that as we're, if we're invested in it, it will have ramifications in Destiny of X era? I think it's tough to know because it's tough to know who is going to want to pick up these toys after and play with them. The prison reform aspect of it is really the thing that I hope has ramifications. You know, with books like Immortal X-Men, I would really like to see Krakoan justice re-examined and for this book to be the example of why it clearly doesn't work the way we thought it did. And, and on that, in terms of like picking up the, the line of prison reform and, and what that means, like let's not forget that one of our mainline writers, the first shot they got at coming into the X office, given their first shot to take, and they said, yeah, we're going to tell it. We're, we're going to tell a prison story. Yeah, yeah, we're right. going to do we're going to do mutant prison. And I think as far as Sabretooth goes, that he's another example of like, there are a lot of people that come into the X office who Sabretooth is a character that they really want to play with. And after all of this story, it could be a really interesting time for our writer who likes Sabretooth to pick him up. I This to me feels like the last Sabretooth story. There's not a ton more we can do. I cannot do another he comes out and is in some way good or you know wants to be a part of the thing. And at the same time, I can't do another oh, is he going to rape and murder somebody again? I'm just kind of done with all of it. This is an amazing story, but I would like this to be the capstone of Sabretooth's completely fucked up journey to nowhere. And my hope is that somebody else does not pick up on him. Well, there is one other thing that I've thought of while we're talking about this because and it just kind of blends because the when we're talking about like what can you do with Sabretooth the only other option really that I other than prison is, is exile um, when you talk about like what to do with him and you know do you planet Hulk him and at this point though like we do have something in the X office that we didn't have before which is Araco like at the mm-hmm. end of this story like if you're looking for a place and it can't be the pit what do you do with Sabretooth do you yeet him off to Araco where everyone else is just fucking running around murdering each other and there's no other people there and Sabretooth could just <laughs> like Sabretooth would fit in he, he'd find some very some well kindred, yeah he'd fit in on the red planet yeah mm-hmm. he would thrive there I think just by the way that their culture works on that planet he definitely would thrive there and I think that that would be the perfect location for him to move to I think if this is moving where I think it's going to be moving I think Doug's going to be involved and he's going to assist in the jailbreak just like he did with Nature Girl and Curse. And if that's the case, I can see him helping Sabretooth getting to Araco to a place that is more, I mean, I wouldn't really call it welcoming, but more accepting of his of his uh, way of life. You had mentioned like other writers that might want to play with him. Well, uh, isn't it Al Ewing is going to be on like, I could totally see Al Ewing as being the, you know, dibs on Creed. And as somebody that I would trust to you know, I wouldn't even say do something new because I don't really think there's much more new that you can do with Sabretooth, but he's not an find incredibly ways... deep character. Yeah. And if you give him depth, you're getting a little untrue in a sense to, to who he is. Like you can't exactly. just someone else. And now. Ewing is somebody who can work with those parameters and give you something true that feels valid, 
but isn't again just rewriting the narrative or switching his brain to be a good guy's brain now whatever the the thing is that we've tried we know it doesn't work because some other writer is going to get interested in him being a villain again and then we're just going in circles with this character that can't ever really have any true development I really wasn't expecting to find myself liking this book. This has just been such a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to the next one. I want to see where they go and how they bring Mole into this more. You know what I think affected that for me a little is, and, and some of it is based on like the colors and the design they use for the cover of issue one. But we had that early in the, the Dawn of X era. There was that, was it Frank Thierry did the, the Ravencroft? thing with the saber tooth issue and they're like hey, don't worry this doesn't take place during our timeline like it's just fucking and this is gonna be this bad saber tooth fucking one shot and and yeah like no, no this takes place before kokoa so it doesn't you're not missing anything and it definitely i had some vibes off of that like oh like are we but it was a real x book and so i picked it up anyway and and I'm, I'm glad i'm glad i think you know that had kind of given me a little bit of like a bad taste or like oh more shit but but this is not that this is a a much better take i I always am calling for more slice of life Krakoa books and this weirdly falls into that category for me this is not what I meant when I said that but it has uh, it really expanded my understanding of Krakoa Krakoan culture Krakoan justice and I I think it's a really important thing to have because so many of the stories are really heavily plot driven and it's a lot of intrigue and a lot of infighting and a story like this helps us to better understand how these people have come together as a nation. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. It's such a bummer that X-Men Legends is coming to an end. I've had such an interesting time interacting with these stories. Sometimes I've been kind of like, but why the fuck? And other times I've been kind of like, yes, the fuck. Uh, I think this time I was just sort of like, how is it that Chris Claremont didn't do any of the first 11 and only got a one-parter? Of course, all said and done, I have enjoyed the contributions from industry greats like Fabian Nicieza and Nascenti, Peter David, and Larry Hama as they have continued to excitingly push some of their more beloved storylines forward. And it was a really great opportunity to experiment with how older stories are still viable in a very different modern age. So guys, as always, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. It's Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. We have a Marvel Fanfare Friday coming up for you guys next. So until then, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those crocodiles and gateways open yes i promise we will be back to x lives and deaths of wolverine i promise we might even have to do like an extra one next week so it might not be magic mondays it might be like ah crap it's another wolverine monday but until then we'll see ya Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, a show where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and kick-ass fighting fuzzy elves. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Jake. You can find me plotting the downfall of Krakoa over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. And that makes me Nico over at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. That's Nico Action. And we hope you guys survive this experience. And we're 
we're covering X-Men Legends number 12, written by Chris Claremont, pencils by Scott Eaton, inks by Lorenzo Ruggiero, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Now, so talking in the green room to Jake, I was talking about what made this issue work so well for me was that I think this hit what I think Marvel was pitching X-Men Legends as, as a way for storytellers who have written X-Men in the past to get to finish their stories that they never got a chance to. And I really like where this story inserts itself in terms of canon, where we kind of get this brief little moment of what happened before Excalibur happened. And I don't know if anybody was explicitly banging pots and pans about this, but I would love to know your, both of yours opinions about where this story is meant to fit in canon wise. I mean, you know, it's borderline explicit, you know, that it's supposed to be between mutant massacre after they both get owied and then Excalibur when they both, you know, find the strength to carry on because the hero came along. But I think for me, okay, so my, my, I loved this issue. I actually loved it. I think I gave it one of the, I gave it the highest score of any X-Men Legends issue by far. And it was one of my best picks of the week somehow. But the thing about, and just somehow because X-Men Legends is so essentially inconsequential, it would be unusual for the story to really hit me like that. But I think my issue with it, I think my problem with it was specifically, this just felt like the way Claremont would write Nightcrawler and Kitty now. I'm not sure that this felt like it needed to go in a time slot. I, I fully agree, actually. These these versions of the characters feel, I don't know, feel out of time from where they they were then. I thought that there were a couple of I thought there were a couple of really interesting moments where Kitty in particular, like when she burns her costume, I thought that that was something that old Kitty might not have done, but current Kitty might have done. In general, though, the particular characters that he decided to bring into this were very it was very timely. Like seeing Mystique and Destiny in this context and knowing, you know, where they are now in Krakoa, seeing Nightcrawler and Kitty, both members on the Quiet Counts. Actually, all all of the X-Men here with the exception, or the, all of the like known mutants here with the exception of Forge, I think, are Quiet Council members. So, you know, it's very timely that Claremont is returning to this time when these characters were interacting in, in you know, a very different kind of way. You know, timeline-wise, it's definitely taking place between Mutant Massacre and the formation of Excalibur. It's also taking place before the Muir Island saga. I, I mean, clearly because Destiny is still alive and Astral Projecting. It's, yeah. I had, I mean, I had some foot notes about that as well my friend i actually you know what go i want to hear what you have to say about destiny astral projecting it seems like something that ruth would do but it doesn't seem like something that irene does so i mean like sure sure here we are x-men legends destiny can astral project here's my take on this whole you know chris claremont fabian nicieza louise simonson these greats of industry once upon a time are the ones who created these characters and true the iterations most successful right now i think you know there's never been a greater time to love destiny destiny mm. went from a weird madam mask looking motherfucker in the background to like all hail queen destiny it's irene's time you know what i mean and i've noticed that a lot of these x-men legend stories feature either you know apocalypse or the shiar something that somebody who's currently playing the larger field is working with mm-hmm. where the original creator was like ah, ta, ta, ta. i yeah. wasn't done and i kind of love the brass on that like legitimately i i find that good for fucking you you're not done man and like i really do love that here so the idea that she can astrally project and this is the stupidest like i actually you know when you come across these things you, you come up with an answer i quite legitimately just assume that she's like mystique we have to go do a thing and mystique's like what's that my dear and she's like we have to go trick a telepath into helping me broadcast a telepathic signal <laughs> and mystique's like who do i have to pretend to be and she's like dealer's choice you know what i mean like there's a i just imagine that destiny was like 
with Mystique, honey. We have a weird errand. And Mystique was like, I'll get my outside shoes. Like, I just imagine that's the exchange. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're living uh, and loving a precog, you kind of do have to just go with the flow because it turns out when you resist it, you die. Yeah. I mean, sometimes Jonah is so dead on with prices when we watch the prices right. I'm like, if he says don't cross the street, I'm not moving. <laughs> um, I thought the appearance of the Harriers was, it was interesting. I did not remember them from the Claremont run, but I had a sense in seeing how there were so many of them with both code names and proper names that they had probably appeared before because it would be kind of weird to like shove nine new characters into a one shot book. My question is, are they mutants or are they using technology? No, they're um, humans. They're humans. Okay, cool. And, and I know they're, they're former shield agents too. It's interesting because they're also they're Everyone is kind of on the same side as well in this, in this fight. Everyone is kind of trying to protect Forge, who it turns out doesn't even want protection to begin with. The main conflict of this issue is that Irene Ashel projects to Nightcrawler, who, please correct me, does Nightcrawler know at this point that Mystique is his mother? No. So, I'm assuming, I very much no. Irene knows this and comes to Nightcrawler saying, Raven's trying to kill Forge, can you stop her? She's not listening to me right now. She said, okay, bye! And that was the entire mission. And uh, actually, it basically was, your mission is, should you choose to accept it, but you don't have a choice, you actually have to do this, because I've already set things up for you. And Nightcrawler being like, well, I guess. And so, he decides that he's going to do this and he has kitty with him who also has lockheed and they're like we're hurt but we're still heroes and kitty's like being a hero sucks and kurt's like yeah i know and then they're fighting the harriers who are trying to protect forge who forge hired because he kind of knows that he's probably being sought after after the things that he did but then they're all just fighting each other but you're right jake they're all on the same side but nobody's communicating because the harriers just automatically assume that nightcrawler is the bad one i well it's a superhero fight superheroes never talk they don't have phones they don't talk they don't they don't communicate well they fight it out and then when they're on the ground like holding each other at like death's door then they're like oh wait oh wait that's very like classic superhero fight trope it makes me i will never stop bringing this is one of the other things i've never stopped bringing up it is the one issue of marvel team up where um, (laughs) johnny storm slipped on ice after somebody robbed a store and immediately assumed it was Iceman and then went to go beat him up <laughs> it's, it's like a classic 60s. That's what it sounds like. And I was, and I was like, first off, now that I'm talking about it, it feels kind of homophobic. But <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> number two, why did you automatically assume it was him? It doesn't matter. But point being, uh, I think that's what maybe works well for this issue is that it feels just a very return to form of more of that kind of, uh, of a more older era of comics where it just feels comfortable and comforting. Where we're not really, expanding the horizons of what we're pushing in terms of this art, but we're more so just kind of getting the story that makes you think, oh, this harkens back to a time that I remember comics to being like, and the comics from now versus comics from them are two different things, and that's okay. The Harriers, I'm going to be very honest, I've never heard of them before reading this comic. So Hardcase and the Harriers represent a sort of unusual situation where, for a very long time, comics as a corporate entity existed to deny creators credit on books, and while Hardcase and the Harriers, at least Hardcase himself, as well as Shotgun and Battle Axe, do appear in Wolverine number five from 
1988, written by Chris Claremont with art by John Buscema. They are inexplicably credited a full year later to being created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri when they ultimately appear again in Uncanny 261. Now at that point, their complement includes Blindside, Longbow, Battle Axe, Lifeline, Piston, Ranger, Shotgun, Time Bomb, Warhawk. I feel like I'm just saying nouns with some weird descriptors. It's like two-syllable words. Right? And of course, Hardcase, who would actually go on to have one more appearance than the rest of the team, appearing again the next month in 262. Now, Wolverine number 5 was March of 89. X-Men 261 and 262 were May and June of 1990. But inexplicably, these characters would make a very clearly named appearance in Wolverine 139, written by Eric Larson, which is a very short run of Wolverine in this particular period of time. It was like a lot of short, choppy runs with very recognizable art by Lionel Francis Yu. And at this point, the Hardcase and Harriers team is Hardcase, Longbow, and Blindside. And the only time they are creator-owned credited is Uncanny X-Men 261, which is strange and significant. What's the significance? Well, because comics as an industry weren't crediting people at the time, it actually changes the rights ownership of how these characters are used by saying these characters are created by it actually gives the creators more like financial reward for the characters usages so in a matter of speaking by giving them this credit at that point it was sort of part of a, a big movement in the comics industry it's actually why Jim Lee why Wills Portacio why mm-hmm. all of those guys left for image so mm-hmm. then it's, it's extremely strange that Eric Larson one of the guys who fucking left for image who would go on to create the far too sexy savage dragon would come back <laughs> and use hard case it's so strange that they would also only be credited creator style like created by the one time that's particularly unusual because these things so frequently fall into that sort of dispute you know as soon as i saw that the characters appeared in this issue my first thought was aha monsieur claremont has decided time to bring out the harriers and it sure was odd they were deemed important enough to be included in wolverine encyclopedia volume one which i find very fascinating when was that published do you know because 1996 oh my gosh so at that point they literally only had one appearance in wolverine number five and then the two uncanny appearances so but at that point they didn't even have the follow-up appearance from 1999 what a great find well so that means that this is this is the only the second appearance of the full roster of hard case and the harriers this is this is all of them right yeah that is why for many years 261 is considered the only true appearance of the full team interesting i loved what was going on with kitty here i really thought that her reluctance to want to engage with the violence her fear and her eventual like capitulation and saying like no like if my friend is going to do this i'm going to do this i thought that was a very real response given what she had been through you really see the trauma response coming out of you know having almost died and having seen the deaths of many many friends and injury like grievous injuries of many many loved ones you see the pain in her eyes you see the 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 fear and like the fetal position she goes into when she's afraid that's not a, a side of kitty that you see much through i mean like you see it when she's first appearing you see it when she's really first coming into her own in the x-men that she's like she's scared she's a kid but here you have someone who has you know she's she's mastered her power she's owned her place in the x-men but she's now like contending with a level of vulnerability and trauma processing having been through this this like this this war zone and is reluctant to do so 
again. And and in some ways, I think this is a good setup for her taking the step into Excalibur next. Uh, you don't see her resolve to continue being a hero show up until that Excalibur special, that one shot, the drawing of the sword, I think, that leads into the main series. And so I kind of like this idea that she's really wrestling with her heroic identity, that she's really trying to decide if this is a, if being Shadowcat is a mantle that she can take up again after what she's been through. And this was a really good, a good opportunity to explore that. I have often found from all that I've read from the comics of yesteryear to now that when it comes to Kate Kitty Pride, Claremont has a really intense, interesting, and specific point of view and vision that he wanted to tell with her story. And here I, I feel and hearken to a part of Kitty's comic adventure life that I was really happy to see again because I love Kate Bishop. Uh, oh, I always said Kate Bishop. I love Kate Pride. <laughs> I also love Kate Bishop. But I love Kate Pride and I love where they're taking her story currently because I think it's really important that she, Kitty finally actually not, I'm going to grow up this time and then regresses. No, 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 no. It is, it is finally time that we put this character in a much more mature role and state. But seeing her back into year, the time where she was a 15-year-old being a superhero, it was really just nice and comfortable and comforting to see again. Kitty and Kurt also have one of the most fascinating friendships that develops over the years, and it is a friendship that starts off so incredibly rocky and mm -hmm. disdaining because Kitty doesn't know how to handle Kurt's visual appearance. And it's one of those cases where I don't know if everybody remembers this, but when I often find that when it comes to any kind of media, people tend to get mad at teenagers for acting as teenagers in situations where you're an adult and you look at a situation, you understand the emotional context of how you're supposed to handle things. Teenagers don't have that emotional capacity yet. And I don't know if anybody did get mad at Kitty for being, you know, scared and, and wary of Kurt at first, but it's also a natural reaction. And I mean, it's something that their friendship has meant so much to me, uh, getting to see it develop and getting to see how much they've grown to genuinely love one another and how much that Kurt cares for her. And even when they, even when Kitty was, you know, verbally mean to Kurt about his appearance and how he acted, he was still somebody who tried to take care of her, who tried to show her, you know, the goofier, lighter side of being a superhero and training and all those different things. So seeing them in this fight and Kurt trying his goddamn hardest, oh, his mind got hardest to <laughs> save Kitty and make sure that she's safe it is just one of the most beautiful things. And I would love to know both of your perspectives of their relationship and context throughout the years, but also specifically how it's portrayed in this title. You know, I think one of the big things is about understanding that forgiveness requires apology and seeking forgiveness and atonement and understanding that that forgiveness could not come and that that's just got to be okay. Apologies aren't about making you feel better. They're about righting the wrong. And Kitty has spent so many years being like, ugh, what a dumb idiot kid I was. And Kurt's been like, and you've said you're sorry, we're good. And like, that's one of the things that, you know, you're speaking about how Kitty had a fear response. You know, she wasn't like, I heard all blue people are dumb, cheap idiots. <laughs> she was like, ah, it's a monster. Oh, it's not a monster. <laughs> all right, hello. 
Like, you know, it was fear and it's not great and we don't want it, but she's worked so hard to atone and that's so not who she is anymore. It was actually shocking to me that Marvel was like, we're going to do an X-Men book about pirates starring Kitty Pride and not include Nightcrawler. And I was like, the fuck? And, you know, ultimately it's because Marauders is about how moderately minimal morality can you have in an X-Men title. And so I get it. But I do think that in many ways, Kitty, Kurt, and, well, I'm sorry, Kate, Kurt, and Rachel do work best together. I really love the original Excalibur dynamic. I really like kind of any configuration of the three of them. And I think that their friendship is super great. And they're a real classic Claremont dynamic. And they do give us a really great opportunity to examine a progression over time. And if anything, I kind of, I love that you were like, you know, it's time for Kate to grow up. It's time for Kate to grow up. You know, Chris Claremont is out there thinking, I have tried this so many times. And every time I do it, someone comes back and says no and makes her 20 again. (laughs) It's not my fault that no one can stop being 14 years old dreaming about the perfect nerd girl. Not my kind of is you created her. But, you know, it is important to remember she is a fictional character. And not that fictional characters don't have power, but an actual 13-year-old girl did not say those things. They came from the mouth of a writer. And while the writer is not his characters, there definitely is a complex tapestry of responsibility for how the words on a page make someone feel. And it definitely is a necessary component of the discussion. And I'm really glad you brought up that people do sometimes get mad at a fictional child. And, you know, there is some there is some validity in that. But there's also some validity in looking at the writer. And it's a very important conversation. So I'm glad you mentioned. You know, it's it's almost frustrating reading some of those early issues and seeing her responses because as readers having like read X-Men before that, you see who Kurt is already. You see that he's this gentle, heroic, you know, self-sacrificing character who would give anything for anyone on his team. And the thing that I appreciate about, and, and Nico, I like that you really frame this as it's a fear response, is that Kitty doesn't let it become an excuse for hate. She doesn't let it become an excuse for discrimination. She recognizes that it's a fear impulse. And when she starts to really understand both her reaction and who Kurt is as a person, she gets over herself. And this is something that becomes central to her core morality too, not to judge a person by the by their appearance. It's something that she works to teach other people too. When Nightcrawler is being chased by a mob, she stops that mob and she says, you think this guy's a devil? You think this guy's a devil? Look in the mirror sometime. Her markedly different response to Caliban, that's a great response. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, she's scared, but she's not like, ah, throw rocks. She's like, that's right. ah, you're gonna get kind of roided out by Apocalypse and be maybe a danger to other mutants, but it kind of works for you in that costume. No, and I won't marry you. Oh, that too. To see the growth of this relationship, to go from a place of fear to a place of he's my best friend and I would do anything for him and and for that that mutuality to be there, to see this as a relationship that's lasted on the page for decades and decades, it's really satisfying. It's satisfying to see that relationships can change and grow organically on the comic page the way they do in reality. And and this throwback to this era where they're, yeah, where, where she's still a kid and he's, you know, he's even still like getting comfortable in his skin. It's, it's really entertaining. Like this was a really entertaining entertaining era to read and this is a nice revisit of some of the dynamics that were going on at that time to springboard off what you're talking about of different relationships and how things are acting this was a very interesting appearance of mystique and now i'm not familiar with 
where Mystique is currently at during this time, the last time I believe I saw Mystique, she was uh, yelling at Rogue, who Rogue runs away to go join the X-Men. And uh, that's about the last thing I saw her do. So at this point, Mystique is in Freedom Force. Yeah, so she's a a government agent. She convinced Val Cooper to bring her on. It's kind of the precursor to the 90s X-Factor, where the whole team is like Mystique's brotherhood, essentially. It's, It's Blob, Avalanche, Pyro, Destiny, Mystique, sometimes Julia Carpenter, I guess and Spiral also sometimes it, those two I'm just like okay sure but yeah so Mystique is towing the line of like I am a I am a chaotic person technically I'm chaotic lawful chaotic I guess is where she is where she's landing with this but under Claremont she has this trajectory of anti-hero she's she's a lot more like a, a kind of bad Wolverine um, because she you know she she has her methods and her means and she has her political agenda and she you know technically it's a good political agenda because we want to see mutants survive but she's also willing to do whatever it takes to get there and claremont takes her from that point and really works on her to try and soften her and it's i think it's in other writers hands especially in the 90s where she starts to get that like crazy mystique that we uh that we now see a lot more prominently also she's had a government job this entire time her alter ego raven darkholm which she often goes into government facilities and just steals data there's so much inconsistency because i do definitely hear a lot of what you're saying but this is well after like maniacal i'm going to assassinate a president mystique so like senator a a presidential candidate because they need to stop him from becoming you know this is mystique on a mad rampage to assassinate political figures to change the course of the future so like claremont did bring her in at like a nine and i think it's one of those (laughs) things where claremont was like oh but look how human she is let's bring her to a six so that she can be a person and Mm -hmm. other writers were like but i like the nine and what's a 9.5 how about a 12 and like it you know poor banshee banshee's constantly getting murdered by psychotic terrorist mute ladies it's just unfortunate preach so this appearance of mystique i found so interesting because when i last left mystique off she she wasn't doing anything you know malicious or mean or anything she was kind of just being a mom but like she was being a mom and she wasn't really understanding why her daughter was hurting so much and like what to do about it and she was kind of projecting like this is how i would solve this situation so this is how you should solve it and rogue's like no this is not helping i i need help and raven's like but do you though you could talk to me i'm right here and rogue runs away because she's also dealing with some identity issues because she's also obsessed with dazzler And seeing her here in this moment of like, I'm going to kill Forge, which I also find funny because Mystique was the person who introduced us, the Raiders, to Forge. And I will never forget that he was wearing the tidiest shorts mm. in the entire world. With Sexy daddy fuckboy. Sexy daddy fuckboy. He was one of the, the campiest looks I have ever seen. And Legs for days. He truly, truly was just trying to uh, get, make sure we were all fed. <laughs> but I find this moment that Mystique has of being so soft and kind of just letting it go, not easily, but kind of feeling like a lot of her identity has shifted from being on the Freedom Force. I would love to know your guys' opinion on this because I found this so fascinating as a moment of this feels like something that would happen and I could believe for Mystique, but it doesn't feel it aligns with not only past Mystique for where I left her off, but also where Mystique is at currently, where she's 
trying to hunt down and murder Moira. It's something I talk about a lot when a character is so multifaceted like Mystique, you know, whether you compare X Corporation from, you know, the really, really undervalued uh, Joe Casey run of Uncanny X-Men around 400 to the three years later, Brian K. Vaughn brilliant Mystique solo series to three years later where she's Fox and she's in the Mike <laughs> Carey run trying to seduce Gambit. And we get the line of dialogue, Mama, did you sleep with my boyfriend? And I, you know, she's just so many things and so many of them are kind of nuts. And you wind up in a position where, you know, Claremont was just kind of doing iterations of characters he enjoyed with this. It's the final issue of the first volume of a book that I'm pretty sure exists because a lot of writers and artists still know where the bodies are buried. And <laughs> I feel like this is very much a, uh, you know, I, I I don't think he walks in the room and says, I'm Chris Claremont. I think he walks in the room and they go, and he gets a book. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> I feel as though there are so many great names here and, and great writers. I felt a lot of that way, what you just said about the end Ascenti volumes, where it sort of felt like this is a very specific apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I felt that way about the amazing Larry Hama three-parter that I kind of wish was a two-parter. And I, I don't know. I very much get your question. I do. And my answer is, I see you. I think this is the mystique that Claremont wants there wants to wants to see on the page. I mean, he he doesn't. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, we know now that Mystique and Nightcrawler are mother and son. He was really fond of dropping those hints, but never. I don't think he ever got to write that story himself. That was an X Men Unlimited issue, wasn't it? Yeah, from, that's from the '90s after he was off of Marvel or after he was out from Marvel. Absolutely, that and uh, like Weapon X and mm-hmm. Enemy of the State. Just so many stories that he originally pitched that other people got to write. It's crazy. So the more I read this this particular issue, the more I think that Destiny didn't really care about saving Forge because she knew that Mystique wouldn't kill Forge anyway, and she just wanted Mystique to have an encounter with Nightcrawler and to sort of reify the fact that she she's trying to ch- that she is changing because she doesn't shoot Forge. She she ha- she like she's already come and gone from that room, and he's like chasing after her, being like, "Hey, hey, I wanted you to kill me. Come back here. Come back here and kill me." And she's like, "No, I'm a hero. No, I don't do that, Forge. Sorry." And like that's not really how Mystique has been written subsequently. So I think this is a bit of it's a bit of wish fulfillment, but at the same time, it's like, what if we had gotten this Mystique? What if Mystique had continued to go, like, actually move towards that, like, move in that heroic arc? You know, what would what would her time on X Factor have been like? Which not, she probably wouldn't have had a bomb in her neck. I guess, yeah, I see this as the the Mystique that Claremont wanted. You know, he wanted her to be sympathetic. He wanted her to be Nightcrawler's mom and Rogue's mom and Destiny's wife. And I think that's all coming across here. That this is this is the Mystique that he wants us to to see and know and love be the mystique you want to see in the books this mystique <laughs> was not a mystake <laughs> what a yes, Steve. <laughs> You win the morning, Jonah. What I found so fascinating about the way that Mystique and both Destiny treat Nightcrawler in this, they are both very soft towards him. And they're both like, the way that at least I see Mystique talking to Nightcrawler in this, it kind of feels like there, she has those moments of like, it feels like she's acting as if her motherly instincts are kicking in. And she's like, I'm literally looking my child in the face. I'm like, am I really going to shoot him? And in other days, she might, she might actually shoot him. I mean, she did yeet him off a waterfall, but more 
importantly, I think she's kind of confronted with a lot of different things and she's confronted with a lot of different emotions, I think, in this moment for when her daughter Rogue, she is believed to be dead. She has her son Nightcrawler staring her in the face, telling her, don't shoot, do the right thing. She's been a hero working for the government for a little while at this point, that there's so many different things that up to this moment, I actually kind of buy that this is the resolution to this conflict. I actually wouldn't Mm -hmm. believe and buy that, okay, if all of this is happening to Mystique, and this comes out during the time this is set in, I would believe that this is how she would react in this situation. I very much enjoyed this version of Mystique and getting to see her be like, no, I guess I do have to do the right thing, huh? Well, the interesting thing about Mystique in this era is that she's really in her own way kind of leaning into the assimilationist vision that Professor X is like, this is the only way forward. You know, she's she's working with humans. She's working within the human government. She's, you know, showing up and being like, look, mutants can be productive members of this society and we can work alongside humans as well. I was a criminal. Look at me now. And I I think that, gosh, I just, I think in an era when, you know, Xavier's in space, the X-Men are kind of without their dream compass for a while, seeing how different factions of mutants take that up or reject the Xavier dream that's so central to the X-Men narrative has always been a really, really compelling question. You know, is she advancing the cause for mutants in her work with Freedom Force? Is she here trying to be the better mutant by not shooting Forge and saying, you know, we need to be better. I need to like really step up my change from within game. Or is this all self-serving? Speaking of self-serving, can I jump in with a a question that is completely unrelated? But if I don't get to ask it before we leave, I'll never forgive myself. Please. Guys, do you think that when Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri created the Harriers, he (laughs) set out and said, it's kind of like the Seven Dwarves. If we name them very descriptive things, we don't need to give them particular personalities. This one, blindside, will never see anything coming. And this one, longbow, only good at ranged combat. Like, what am I meant to take from these nine people, these nine characters who just have, like, lifeline? Oh, do I call him if I'm on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Like, Piston, your car goes. Like, I don't understand some of these names and, like, nine is too many people to give personalities to. Like, I remember one time being in a script writing class in college and uh, my teacher who, you know, she, one of those things where, like, you win a couple of Emmys and nobody can ever correct you in class ever. And <laughs> so she was a little a little intense and she would literally just say to people, you do not have the mental dexterity to write three characters on a single scene. Stick to two people. Remember, make dialogue Woof. a duologue. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And like, I feel like nine, no matter what, nine is is just pushing it in a in a really pushing it way. <laughs> can, can I can I one up you just slightly, Nico? There's ten oh, of them. We have Warhawk, Ranger, Shotgun, Blindside, Axe, Hardcase, Longbow, Time Bomb, Piston, Lifeline. You're right. There's, 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 wow. Okay. There's too many. <laughs> Lifeline isn't even on the list on the front page. Online does seem to count him as like the unofficial Harrier. He's sort of like the fifth beetle of the Harriers. You know? I mean, either way, it does make for some very crowded storytelling to have this many characters in one issue of comics. Even if the Harriers are just like two dimensional and are just getting taken out by Nightcrawler. It's a lot of bodies it, to draw. It's a lot. It's a lot of bodies. To, it's a lot of bodies to drop, too. I'm surprised that Kurt can do that with a broken wrist, I guess, and a sudden surge of teleportation that he can do again. Looking at this picture of all of them, 
in the way that they're drawn. First off, they're all this. I think this is like they're all standing in a very the, the exact same pose, and it's very funny to be looking at this image. Um, but these look like what Marvel would try to do if they wanted to create something like a GI Joe line. Yes, they're all they're these mercenaries all dressed in camo with code names. It, it kind of feels like this was Marvel's take on GI Joe, but like decided to do nothing with them, and then they're just there. <laughs> something else I have in a weird fond appreciation for i love the chris claremont names because sometimes they're very literal i mean can we look at the original hellions mm, mm-hmm. i mean yeah at some point he was just gonna start to be like testo rage hgh man like he was just gonna start to scrape it I w- i'm waiting for the mutant named pen <laughs> Just pen. Pen. Let's draw you into a fence. Oh yeah. Where's pen? Where's clipboard? Where's electrical socket? Like they're like Oh, clipboard (laughs) should definitely I feel like clipboard is probably part of like the Genosian press gang. Exactly. This is my new favorite (laughs) bookcase can count can carry an unlimited amount of information. (laughs) Doorknob can turn any wall into a gateway. God, I can do this all day. Picture frame. Ski lift can carry several people at once. Uh, Bank of America, which (laughs) he can provide you a loan from any given like. Not sponsored, by the way. <laughs> I just, um, I, oh, I really appreciate tape. the consistency of like the two syllable descriptor names, though, for all of these characters. It does feel like he kind of came up with them in five minutes. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's absolutely energy drink category here. Rockstar, Red Bull, Monster. It's a very, very hard case. Shotgun, Ranger. And I wonder if just for this story, he to get to this medium, because this story has nothing to do with the Harriers. They're just kind of there. And I think they were just there in every other appearance that they've had. <laughs> Give us the slice of life of what the Harriers do, because they haven't been seen in so long. Are they just like sitting at their base, like constantly just waiting to be called upon for something? Where's no, that are story? Now? Are they you in know, Orcus now? I'm afraid they're in Orcus now. I feel like Claremont, like a lot of creators who's been at the game for so long, has heard certain questions a million times and like has to get to a certain point where he's like give me the fucking notebook all right um between excalibur and mutant okay masker uh harriers and kitty okay i'm gonna do that story and it's almost like he does the the little finger game like it says blue 13 you know what i mean like and he he assigns it that way because this does just sort of feel like we forgot to let chris claremont do an issue of legends (laughs) like because this is the final issue of the series and when they're coming back i believe they are technically coming back with the oldest working member of the ex-historical office. That's right. So when they're coming back, they're coming back with the only guy who can look Chris Claremont in the eyes and go, baby. So like... (laughs) I feel like there's a sort of, oh, fuck, we forgot to let Chris do one of the stories. Okay, um, quick. How many issues is the Larry Hamill? Three, it's three, it's the, how is it three issues? And Saber two. Okay. So then, but we have to do the Moira Sinister issue for no reason because it's adorable. Like, you know, there's sort of a, a, a sense of if we didn't get this in in time, it would feel like a mistake. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue. It, it does seem odd that he has one issue at the very end and didn't 
didn't even didn't even get like a two issue arc and it does kind of force the story to go pretty quick and resolve pretty pretty fast i don't think the story could last over two two issues though this is i could have seen this be a six issue arc not the heart like fuck no just like six different villains kitty and kurt magical pirate ship floating Ooh. through space on a journey to dick in a box i don't know but like it's one of those things where i really feel like if this wasn't what felt perhaps a little bit like best parts version or maybe a little bit like a fleshed out wikipedia summary i really could have loved this a lot a lot a lot instead of just man this is this would be really cute if they do a pre-excalibur omnibus i'd put this in there this is so cute i agree with that i was just thinking about how this story really reminded me of it was a post-mutant massacre story that he wrote where storm gets abducted by stonewall and saber the three old mutants who fought in world war ii and they're like you know they're doing like the the hunting the most dangerous game and they think storm's a criminal so they decide they're gonna like try and hunt her to death storm wakes up in the woods she's like how the hell did i get here she's being hunted by people who are like operating out of a very fancy chalet it's very similar beats to what's going on here and i wonder if he had some of that in his head while he was writing this I wonder if there was a version of this script where Moira appeared and they were just like, nope, nope, no. Nope. Yeah, I would love to know how, that's what I'm saying. This could have been six issues. I would have loved to know what got cut. And I really hope that Claremont makes a few more appearances in volume two. I know yeah, he's agreed. got that upcoming Gambit miniseries, but that is not the project I was hoping for. Yeah. Because this is the last issue for this volume, in volume two, is there a story within the X-Verse that you would love an insert for? Is there something you would love to see covered in volume two? Because I absolutely want to see what happens to Rachel Phoenix in Mojo World. Yeah, that's another one right around this time. That would be another great one to tell. It was never printed. It was always promised but never delivered. I think this would be a great a great medium to get that story on the page. I'd like to see more from the Jeff Loeb era of X-Force and Cable. You know, sort of by anybody from around that time. I'm not creator specific at all. Maybe one of the artists could get to write it if they're so inclined to return. But that, that really fun sassy everybody's in yellow and purple and you know they're figuring out like Shatterstar is like multiple people and <laughs> Boom Boom has like short butch hair and like it's just great it's a strong team of women there yeah between, I love that uh, Mel- I think she's going by Meltdown at that point it's Meltdown Domino Siren they have a couple of really great girl boss missions together Danny comes in and out mm-hmm. girl boss gatekeep gaslight I would love a story Carol Denver's is binary and mm. that's technically X adjacent it still works I'm a lot to ask for this. 